Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing, I'm Peter Switzer. On tonight's show, we continue my investigation into value stocks. The experts believe this is a time for value stocks, and so I've got fund manager Roger Montgomery to give his value stock tips going forward. The CEO of iSelect, Warren Hebbard, will explain why his share price has been challenged and what might happen to change that in the future. Next, one of the best predicting economists in the country, Michael Knox of Morgans, joins me and my colleague Paul Rickard of the Switch Report explains what might kill off this housing price boom. That's the show, so let's go stock hunting with Roger Montgomery from Montgomery Asset Management. Welcome to the program, Roger. Thanks, Peter. Good to be with you. Now, Roger, let's go back in time in history when we first started hanging out together after GFC. And uh, you, know, you, you, you taught me a lot about you know, picking companies out in terms of their intrinsic value. And you made the point that uh, often the market will misprice um, companies. And you go looking for companies that look like really good value. Tell us a, a little bit about the way you do pick companies that you think are, are value um, plays. Well, the first step is you forget about, let's just put value to one side for a minute because you know, people get tarred with that brush and, and, and I think there's a, there's a misconception about what our brand of value is. So put that aside and we'll come back to that in a sec. Mm. First step is quality. So the first step has to be a quality company. It has to be generating a, or, or have the ability to generate high rates of return on incremental capital and it has to have bright prospects. You see, the conversation about growth versus value that's been going on over the last few years has really been, um, you know, and, and, and the idea that value investing doesn't work or hasn't worked for a few years is really based on a very conventional understanding of what value is. And that is that it's a low PE stock or it's a you know, high yield stock or a low price to book stock. Well, in actual fact, you can't value something unless you can estimate its growth. Now, what we want are companies with bright prospects as well. We want companies that are going to be much bigger in the future than they are today. So then we're trying to find those at a rational price. And so that means that means high quality businesses with bright prospects at a rational price. For me, the rational price is below an estimate of value. And I also want to see bright prospects for that value to grow over time. Right. Okay. So, um, so given that, and after the last big crash, the GFC, you saw lots of companies that you thought fit in that category. Oh, absolutely. Well. Yeah, I, and I, last year as well. Yeah, that's right. Now, because of last year was such a big rebound and there were some fantastic companies. And, and look, let me personally say that I, I was a big supporter of a company like Webjet, though I wasn't sure whether it had the quality that you said. Uh, I just thought that the market really has smashed it. And if provided that one day normalcy comes back, the kind of prices we saw around what well, $1.82, it seemed to me it was a pretty easy play. But it wasn't necessarily the, the quality company that you might put CBA in at 66. Yeah, no, it wasn't over. a, no, you're right. It wasn't a CBA, but let's remember that during the COVID, you know, the, the, the pandemic, when it, when it hit us properly, mm. um, you know, we, we both would have agreed perhaps that uh, that Flight Centre was a better quality company than yeah. uh, than Webjet, and yet it was Flight Centre that had to raise a whole lot of capital and not Webjet. Hmm. So you know that reframes your understanding of what a quality company actually is. Sure, Webjet is no Commonwealth Bank, and you know, but 
but Afterpay is no ANZ either, and yet it was trading recently at 63% of mm-hmm. ANZ's market cap. So, you know, so when you talk about, you know, it, it's really important to, rem- to, to be flexible in your understanding of how thesis can change about a, a company. Um, mm-hmm. So you, we both would have agreed that I think in, as I said earlier, I think 12 months ago, 18 months ago, we probably would have agreed Flight Centers are probably a high quality business, uh, the Webjet, but then coming through that pandemic, we very quickly reframe our perception of what quality is. Yeah, and I, and I, I can recall way back when you first discovered a company called Altium, well, yeah. we didn't know whether it was going to be a quality company. It looked like it had enormous blue skies ahead of it and it actually proved that it did. But at the point of time, it was an assessment that they were in the, probably in the right space and they're doing the right things. Well, they were even back then though, even though they were much smaller, uh, they were, you're right, they were in a, in a great space. I mean, you think about every electronic device in the world has a PCB, mm. um, you know, a printed circuit board, uh, and they build the software that uh, helps designers design those circuit boards. Um, but they were generating very high returns on very arguably smaller amounts of equity, but mm. they were still generating very high returns. And we could see that they could scale that up. That gave us the impression of it being very high quality. Back then, it was also a bargain. Yep. Before I ask you a couple of stocks that you might like now, I'd love to get your take on the fact that, like, out of the GFC, you weren't competing with this new age group of younger or novice investors who are, you know, linked up to online brokers who are actually reading and um, stuff, uh, watching programs like this and investing because term deposits are ridiculously low. Had had these, and a lot of fund managers were complaining that these new investors were making it hard or were, were creating a bubble. What was your take on the age of the new investor? Yeah, look, you and I have both been around long enough to see, you know, waves of, you know, generations of people come into the stock market. Uh, very quickly, if you'll indulge me, I gave a presentation in 1999, November 1999, at the Australian Stock Exchange building on Bridge Street here in Sydney. I was in the... Uh, in the theaterette, the new theaterette that they built downstairs. Mm. Now I think that seats about 300 people or thereabouts. It was a Saturday, was standing room only. The fire department came and had to clear people out of the aisles because there was no exit if there had been a fire down there. They were were sitting cross-legged on the floor in front of the stage. And I remember asking the audience, put your hand up if you'd be happy with a 20% return if you invested with a fund manager over the course of a year no one put their hand up and the and the reason why the reason why they didn't is because the average first day listing on the nasdaq that year was 90 percent mm. you know the first day listing premium was 90 percent nine zero now six months later i gave another presentation on a saturday in that same theaterette i reckon there were 12 people mm. you know in in the audience they'd gone, they come and they go. And so, yes, there's a huge wave of people that are participating, but as Warren Buffett once said, don't, you know, um, it's only when the tide goes out, you see who was swimming naked. Mm. And the other one that I like is don't mistake a rising market for genius. Mm. Um, So, you know, there's going to be, there's always going to be in a bull market, there's always going to be new investors. Uh, But what you'll find is there'll be a core group who remain when the market sells off. Now on the subject of a bubble, I get that there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of IPO premium coming. You know, we're seeing that in the market now. I get that these SPACs look ridiculous in the United States. I get that um, you've got a lot of new investors doing some pretty silly things like GameStop and so on. 
but I don't, and, and there are pockets of bubbles. So, you know, the EV stocks in the US, for example, Tesla, uh, the buy now pay later space in Australia, you, you could argue they're, they're bubble-like conditions. But to infer from that that the entire market is in a bubble, I think is a mistake. Um, and as long as the assets that are, that are inflating, as long as those assets aren't on the balance sheets of systemically important financial institutions, then we're not gonna have a financial crisis. So if the market does sell off because everybody says, look, there's all these bubbles, the market's going to collapse. I don't think that's going to be something we need to worry too much about. I think it'll be transitory and I think it'll be a buying opportunity because it's not going to lead to a financial crisis. And the reason why it won't is because Afterpay and Tesla aren't on the balance sheets of Goldman Sachs and uh, the Commonwealth Bank. Property, mm. property is for the Commonwealth Bank. Uh, and that's why I think you know every government and every... Uh, regulator and every financial institution is incentivized to prop property up in Australia. You know, I think property owners are a protected species, just as an aside. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Let's go to, to the, the, the sexy bit of this interview, mate. What companies right now do you think uh, look like good value based on your criteria? And you want a company that has basically, I, I love the, the, the attitude of the guys at WCM in uh, in America, they they want they want a moat like Warren Buffett, but like you, they want a growing moat. Yes, exactly. You want a business, uh, you want a business that that uh, has a competitive advantage that is going to be even more entrenched over time. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's you know there's a number of stocks in the U.S. that meet that criteria with very long runways for growth. And 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 Peter, that, that's I will mention a couple of stocks quickly, but you know, in the U.S. People say the stock market, the S&P 500 is expensive, but 25% of the market is in five stocks yeah. that have precisely the qualities that Warren Buffett's been talking about. You know, they've got, they've got long runways for growth. They've got very high rates of return on equity. Facebook, Google, Amazon, uh, Apple, you look at their return on equity over the last five years, it's gone up as they've become bigger. Imagine a bank account with a million dollars in it that earned 10% interest but you knew that when it got to 50 million, it was going to earn 20% interest. And when it got to 100 million, it earned 40% interest. Yeah. You know, that's a very valuable asset. And so the, the, the US market is being led by some of these companies. Anyway, back to your question about what we like at the moment. There is a, there's a number of small cap companies uh, that have been sold off because they've been treated as COVID winners or exclusively COVID winners. Yep. Uh, and they are businesses like Unity Wireless, um, which is run by uh, Vaughan Bowen. Um, uh, uh, Macquarie Telecom, for example, is another one. So those two businesses, we think they are structural winners, not tactical winners. So we think they're going to actually, um, Macquarie Telecom owns data centres. Hmm. Data centres did well during the pandemic. The reason why data centres did well during the pandemic is because uh, because people were downloading things more, um, you know, movies and music and streaming and all that sort of thing. Uh, but this is a structural winner. This is a business that's going to benefit from small and medium enterprises uh, moving their IT needs to the cloud. They are democratising uh, IT for business. So previously, you had to be a Commonwealth Bank, you had to be a Telstra to be able to afford a big uh, computer room, you know, that was maintained professionally. Now that's, that's uh, outsourced uh, and consequently small businesses have got that same 
uh, computing power available to them. That's structural. That's going to keep going. And David over at Macquarie Telecom, he's going to develop that business. There's going to be three data centers in that car park at Macquarie uh, in Sydney near Epping. Uh, that'll be worth several billion dollars. And we think, we think the business is worth perhaps $70 a share and it's trading at between, call it $35 to $45 a share. Mm. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a structural winner. It's been sold off because people thought its story was over, but it's got a long way to go. Let me, let me give you a bit of an insight to both those two companies. I taught Vaughan Barwin and I taught David Tudor. You told so. me that. Remember, because <laughs> I remember years and years ago, we were talking about M2 telecommunications. Yeah, yeah. And you said exactly the same thing then. You taught Vaughan. Uh, and remember, he took M2 from a 25 cent stock to an $11 stock. Yeah. Uh, and we think he'll do it again at okay. Unity Wireless. So there's two. You got a third one before we go? Yeah, this is an interesting one. Um, it's our biggest position in the small companies fund. Uh, it's, um, it's Alliance Airlines. Now, you might think, oh, hang on, Rog, you hate airlines. Hmm. This isn't really an airline. It's a business that basically provides aircraft to airlines. Uh, and so let's say Qantas says, oh, we need a Dash 8 uh, for the next year. Uh, we need an extra Dash 8 to get people from Sydney to Lord Howe Island, for example. Well, what, what uh, Alliance does is they say, right, well, we can provide that aircraft. We bought them really cheap because there was another airline overseas that was going to put them in the, in the Mojave Desert. Desert. Uh, and uh, so we got these planes really cheap. Uh, it costs us this much to, uh, to provide to you. We'll put a margin on top of that. Whether you fill it with passengers, whether it runs every day, whatever happens to the oil price, staffing, that's your issue. That's the airline's issue, not our issue. And we get a very surprisingly high return on equity uh, running uh, that particular business model. Uh, so we like it. It's not, it's perhaps more tactical than it is uh, structural uh, because we think they're going to do very well as we come out of the COVID pandemic and airlines realise, okay, we, we've got a lot more passengers. We need a lot more planes. And we, we, if we order them, they're going to take two years. Uh, so let's get Alliance uh, to give us some planes and they'll be ready to go. So we like that business. Yeah, I'm curious about that because I've just interviewed John Sharp from Rex. And Rex have some pretty big plans. And it uh, be interesting to see how that company goes on the stock market, mate. In, indeed. Uh, thanks for joining us on the program, Roger. Always good to be with you, Peter. Thanks again. Well, joining me now is Warren Hebbard, the CEO of iSelect. Thanks for coming on the program, Warren. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Now, Warren, over the years, I've interviewed people from iSelect. I've always thought that the business itself was in a, a great space, providing the kind of services that people really want in a competitive financial um, uh, system. But uh, you know, in recent times, the share price hasn't really performed the way people would like. So what's been the, the issues for the company? Yeah, it, it has been a story journey and, and, and I started with the business uh, over three years ago now. So it, it's, that was somewhat of a tumultuous period. There's a long list of legacy items. Um, I joined in 2018, the capacity of CMO and that role expanded over those three years and now into CEO. Mm -hmm. the, the challenges have been on the regulatory environment. That there were some, there was some marketing challenges, the model itself. Um, and the way we approach business, it was previously a one size fits all um, and we've adapted that model. Um, I mean, the business now is in, in much better shape and, and, and part of the succession planning and why I took this role 
was, you know, we're using the mantra, the decks are cleared and we're forward facing for the first time in some time. So we, we've got a clean balance sheet, we've got no debt. Uh, we've got a trail asset that's worth 120.3 million. Um, you know, we're trading below NTA. So I think, you know, I certainly don't want to get into the conversation like every ASX CEO says their business is undervalued, but for those who are in the sort of deep value fund space, I think we're an interesting stock to look at here and now, given the cleanup job we've done on the business. And, mm. and now we're focused on getting ourselves back into growth. And that's what mm. FY22 is going to be about. Mm. Uh, Warren, not every CEO. I think the guys at Afterpay haven't yet come, come that line, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, let's, let's have a get, run through some, some interesting aspects of the business. Uh, in December, uh, Forager Funds, uh, pick you guys as a prime takeover target. Have you actually had anyone knocking on the door? Yeah, look, at, we, we had an MBIO process um, back in uh, July or, or early August of last year. Um, our major shareholder is IHA, which is the holding company that owns Compare the Market, which is our major competitor. They own 29% of us. Um, there's currently a ACCC mergers and acquisitions pre-approval process going on uh, at the moment, which, which the outcome is pending. Um, uh, for those investors out there, they can read the documentation either via ASX or via the ACCC. Uh, there's not a lot I can share on that given uh, the process is underway and we're party to that. But, but what's publicly available um, in terms of that information is that they're seeking approval from, for the current shareholding and an increase in future shareholdings as well. So we await the outcome of the ACCC. We're fully cooperating. We're party to that. And, and that should be forthcoming in some uh, period in the not too distant future. But the ACCC, in fact, hasn't published a, a timeline for that either. Yeah. My, my uh, memory make, makes me think that ISLEC was one of the first in the market, I think Info Choice was there and that sort of stuff. But ISLEC got into a, a much bigger range of comparisons. But now, nowadays, there's a lot of competitors in the market compared to then. Um, is that been part of the challenge as well, that there's just more people in the market? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look at the, the history of this business, it's 20 years old now. It was, you know, it was ahead of its time when it launched. Um, it was a USP in terms of it was the only shop in town at one stage. Um, no doubt there's been increased competition. Um, but I think what you're seeing, I don't think I know what you're seeing is, is consumers and the appetite for all things comparison and not just in the spaces we pay in, in insurance and utilities mm. is increasing because consumers see the significant benefit it can deliver in terms of saving them money and time. Um, this business, you know, where we're taking it longer term to offset you know, the increase in competition, and there is a longer tail of competitors out there, there's no doubt, is it is, we've still got scale. Um, we, we own a lot of customer data. We've been investing in the infrastructure that underpins that data. And, and we see the model evolving to all things, consumer data rights and open banking and how we start to fully automate some of those journeys and reduce a lot of friction out of the customer's experience for comparison. So you know, for the first time in a long time, we're, we're having some regulation go the right way for this business. And, and we're really excited about the opportunity, particularly in open energy, which launches in um, July of 2022. Yeah. Now, also if a memory serves me well, that the, the old isolate business model had a fairly aggressive television advertising campaign with uh, a person who was, I think was put up as allegedly the CEO was quite a, an unusual character. Um, and, but you don't seem to be marketing as aggressively 
as you did then. But I, I do note that you've now got some kind of a marketing partnership deal with News Corp. Can you talk to about the, the previous marketing strategies and the, and the ones going forward? Yeah, certainly. So, so before my time, certainly iSelect has been you know, a great business and a great marketing engine and marketing-led business. I think you're referring to Mr. iSelect there. That's the right. Character. So you know, all our brand values and tone of voice remains the same. The execution's evolved over the years. Um, you know, we're certainly present on TV at scale still. The News Corp deal, you know, is really exciting for this business going forward. Um, the CEO over there, Richard Skimmon and I, worked sort of hand in hand on, on formulating this deal, which is really quite innovative in the way it's been structured. Um, we see it as being a big growth driver going into FY22. We're in the process of onboarding now. Um, it's predominantly done uh, on, on either rev share or cost per lead. So it really gives us the ability to scale, you know, not infinitely, but pretty close to in a profitable manner uh, with the team at News Corp. And, 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 and we see News Corp as an exciting business to partner with. It's 50% cash, 50% script to bring them on the register as well. So it's, um, we're looking at other deals in that space as well at the moment to look at how we create these strategic alliance with, alliances with media partnerships other than just buying spots and dots. Um, and, and look what you've seen in the UK as well. Um, Go Compare was just bought by a media business uh, for about 650 million pounds, I think the, the figure was. Um, so given we're a mass market business, you know, every household in the country has electricity, um, health insurance, I think it's participation rates are in the low 40% at the moment. We make sense uh, to be playing in the same space as media companies because our, our product offering is so broad that you can capture every consumer and eyeball and have a relevant product to sell them. Yeah, and so how long has this partnership been in place? If I'm trying to gauge um, whether you've already got any uplift in business from the partnership or is it more ahead of you? Yeah, it's certainly more ahead of us. Um, the partnership commenced on January 1st. Right. It's got a broad range of what I call convergent paths at inventory that sit on the news properties uh, across their network digitally. We're rolling them out as we speak um, and looking to scale those. Uh, I think by the time we get around to the full year results in August, we'll have some understanding of if, whether this deal is going to be at a level, we've, we've done it at the baseline, which is a four and a half million dollar deal over two years for the first period. And we expect to get anywhere to sort of two times revenue for every dollar we spend on, on marketing investment with news, um, or whether we can get it to super scale well beyond that. I mean, our, our plan is to super scale it, and we think it's certainly got the potential to, but it's a little bit early days to see where it's really going, given where we're partway through the implementation phase at the moment. Okay, now you, you have mentioned the, the uh, two things, uh, playing in the energy space and also open banking. W which one do you think is going to be the biggest driver of revenue going forward? Look, I think, I think going forward, it's going to be all things consumer data, right? And that'll cover eventually health insurance, um, possibly sometime in 2024. They haven't put a date on it. What we do have is a hard date on open energy, which is the first cab off the rank. Um, in July 2022. So I think once consumers really uh, start to adopt the access to that data and businesses like ours integrate, you know, into services, including banking to unlock value for consumers and ultimately save them money and make it easier for them to switch, you're going to see that adoption curve really ramp up. Um, so, so long answer short, initially it's energy because that's the first, um, first um, 
first change that's happening in the consumer data rights space at scale for our business. Uh, and then it'll, it'll feed into health in years following that. And telco as well should be very significant too. Warren, uh, congratulations on the job. Keep my fingers crossed for you. Thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks, Peter. Thanks a lot. My next guest is Michael Knox, Chief Economist at Morgan's. And let me say this, I don't say this very often, but more, uh, Michael Knox is actually an economist who gets it right more, not, more times than not. So I'm really honoured to have him on the program. How are you, Michael? Well, I'm shocked. I'm shocked to be so greeted, Peter, but uh, <laughs> thank you for the accolade. In, in, in actual fact, the, most of the economists I deal with do have a pretty good strike rate. That's why I deal with them. And the ones that don't, I don't deal with very often. And I do want to get, I want to backtrack on a number of things you said back in 2020. One is you, you tipped that the Australian dollar would rise. It has. You thought it would at least go into the 80s. Do you still think that's going to be the case? Oh, yes, very definitely and beyond, yes. Yeah. How high do you think it might go? I know I, I was, one of our financial planning clients the other day was asking me about, and I mentioned the great Michael Knox, and he said, well, I know someone at Morgan Stanley who thinks it might go above parity. And I thought that was a little bit, bit too big a call because it feels as though our Reserve Bank is fighting a lot harder, harder nowadays to keep the dollar down compared to after the GFC. But, Michael, what's your take on it? Um, well, when people ask me that question, I say, when it, when it gets to 90 cents, call me and then I'll tell you where I think it's going from <laughs> there. Um, but uh, you're quite right. So what the RBA, well, we, we've got two versions of our model. Um, one is our longer term model, which is structural. And that suggests that, yes, it could go, the Aussie dollar could go to parity. But we've got our shorter term model in which includes uh, interest rate differentials, particularly uh, bond differentials, uh, yield differentials. And that's what we call our shorter term model. And that's where the RBA is interacting with the market because it's buying uh, Australian long-term bond, bonds to keep our bond yields lower uh, on average than um, US Treasury yields. And it believes if it can, if it can do that, it stops the Aussie dollar overshooting to a point where it makes the Australian economy uncompetitive. Uh, the problem about in doing that is it's, when it does that, it's increasing the, uh, the money base in Australia and that expands uh, credit supply in Australia. So um, uh, that's, um, uh, you know, the, the RBA is between increasing domestic demand and limiting the level of the, the Aussie dollar. Um, we, we think they'll be successful in reducing the rise of the Aussie dollar, but not uh, not eliminating it. Okay. okay, so at least the 80s could be 90s, but possibly it could go to parity. Yeah, possibly, yeah. It depends how successful the RBA is. Okay. All right, let's go to the next big one. This is the big one. And boy, I've been dining off on, on this, you know, um, that after this coronavirus is beaten, and I think you made the point, if vaccinations come in earlier than expected, and they have, that we could be looking at a rerun of the roaring 20s of the 20th century. Do you still like the idea of that possibly happening, mate? Well, I think we've probably, uh, since the 20s, we've probably moved forward to the 1940s. 
Um, because uh, what we've had is a succession of budget deficits, which in actual fact, in real terms, if you deflate by the level of the US CPI, the size of both budget deficits together, last year's US budget deficit, which is 14.9% of GDP, and this year's US budget deficit, which is 14.7% of GDP, the total size of those deficits divided by the CPI is more than the US spent fighting the whole of World War II. Mm. And what happened after World War II was we had an enormous boom. We yeah. had an enormous boom, a commodity boom in Australia. Uh, not just the wool boom, but we were exporting uh, food to around the world. We we're importing minerals around to around the world. And it was an enormous boom for Australia, which generated a, a, an enormous increase in domestic demand. So I've, I'm, I've kind of moved on from the 1920s to the 1940s, Peter. Okay, so should, should, this is like the post-war boom yeah. in the in the US uh, in so, Australia. So what you're saying is you move from a, a roaring twenties to a warring forties. Well, I guess so. A roaring forties, anyway. Anyway, I bet you too. But I bet you you probably use that in, in one of your, your future newsletters. So therefore, a a boom for how many years do you reckon, mate? Is 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 the safe guess? Because people watching this show want to believe. Me when I say I think there's at least two or three good years for the stock market, and then I might start getting worried or whatever. How many years do you think we, we should be likely not to worry too much about a stock market crash? Well, there's a stock market crash and an economic crash, and I'd, I'd just like to keep to the economy first. Yeah, yeah fine. So this expansion of the US budget deficit this year generates a weak US dollar next year and high commodity prices. So what we've got here is a repeat of the resources boom, but the which we've had earlier in the earlier in this century. Yeah. But the resources boom was based on one year of a US budget deficit of 12.5% of GDP. Mm. Now we have two successive years of bigger budget deficits than that in the US of just under 15% of GDP. So this is like the resources boom, but it goes on longer. Mm. So it goes at least until next year and into the year after. The problem is after that is as the US budget goes back to balance, now what, what we had after the resources boom was we had what, uh, what uh, some economists called the dog days. We had mm. a declining terms of trade, weaker demand for labor, uh, no longer an increase in uh, real wages and unemployment was stubbornly high, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So we're going to go through that experience again after we go through this commodities boom, mm. but this commodities boom will go on for longer. Yeah. Now the stock market is, is, a, is a little bit different. Uh, I think for our stocks, I think we'll be in that same situation where we still have a very powerful demand for our restore stocks next year. But it depends, the state of the US market depends very much on this next raft of US tax legislation, uh, which is so-called the infrastructure bill. Yeah. In the infrastructure bill, they're also seeking to increase corporate tax rates which will reduce US after-tax corporate earnings. Mm -hmm. And therefore that you'd expect 
that to, that to put a real lid on any upside in US stocks uh, from next year on, as if, if and when these tax increases occur. We don't know if those tax increases occur. So it's a pretty very good economy. If the US stock market is still good next year, depends on the tax legislation, which we don't know because mm. it's not yet passed, but you know. Yeah, okay, so, so from our point, from our point of view then, the resources boom that you're talking about is probably going to mean that our stock market will probably look good for at least two years. And the third year could be when the US problems might come back to us. But it'd be like America's bringing us down, but the resources are probably still bringing us up. That could be a, you know, a question mark what happens in that third year for us. Yes, we don't know what will happen out that far. Okay, great stuff. Now, Michael, is there anything else out there that you think is really like? Let's just talk about one thing because this is an area that you, you feel comfortable uh, with, and that is this this battle with the the uh, the uh, the bond market, you know, and the, and the ten year rate going up. It seems to me that there's a whole lot of uh, overhyped worrying about this now. It seems to me that. Um, you know, we've got a couple of years where we shouldn't have to worry about interest rates, but what's, what's the inside of you on this? I don't think we have to worry about short rates for a number of years. And I don't think we have to worry about short rates either in the US or, or, or in Australia. And the reason is that it will take us a while, at least until the end of next year, to get unemployment down to in the US, uh, the natural, what's called the natural rate of unemployment. So, and that's about 4%. And you have to have unemployment persistently below that uh, to generate enough inflation to, for the Fed to be able to overshoot its target. Hmm. So if next year, the end of next year, we anticipate uh, uh, that unemployment will fall below that 4%. So that's, uh, 22, 23, we might have the beginnings of wage inflation in 23 and 24. Uh, the Fed has said that it will allow uh, inflation to actually run over its, uh, run on, on top of its target consistently, you know, for a sustained period, it says, uh, because in doing so, it will lift the price level, lift, lift the CPI. They've been undershooting their inflation target for the last five years. They're prepared to overshoot the inflation target for a little while longer before for a little while before they put up rates, okay, out there in the future. So uh, I think it'd be very, very difficult to get increase in the Fed funds rate before 23 or 24. Same here in Australia, in, uh, unemployment's 5.8% right now. Uh, we last, last time we tried to uh, get inflation low enough to, uh, to hit our target, uh, the target was given by the RBA at four and a half percent or lower. So we need to be around about unemployment down around about that level of 4% uh, for a consistent period to generate enough inflation, enough increase in real wages for the RBA to uh, put up rates. But what we are seeing, so I don't think there'll be any increase in short rates, Long rates are completely different, even in a normal cycle. If we go back to the normal cycles of the lot since the 80s, when you have a recovery from a slump, the yield curve becomes extremely positive. So long-term interest rates rise to 3% or a touch more higher than short rates. So we can expect 10-year bond yields to go up 
relative to short rates. So around about uh, three and a bit percent in the US and about a little bit below that in Australia because the RBA is keeping them below as we've, mm. as we've pointed out. Uh, but that's not because of increased inflation. That's because uh, there's a very rapid expansion happening in the US and we'll have a very rapid expansion here. And this increases the real demand for capital. So those bond yields are going up, not because of rising inflation, but because of, it, of the increasing real demand for capital because of a strong recovery. Inflation only happens much later and uh, increases by the RBA and the Fed happen much later in 24, 24, 25. Okay, so the summary is for, for people who didn't understand a word you said then, you know, and, there are, and there are normal people here. Don't worry, it's gonna be a good time and interest rates aren't going up anytime soon. Michael Knox from Morgan's, always great to catch up. Thank you, Peter. Well, recently, New Zealand has come out with some pretty tough policies to try and slow down the house price boom over there. I want to talk to Paul Rickard about what's going on in New Zealand and could those sort of policies come here? Because we're looking at a pretty serious house price boom as, as well. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. All right, now, you've done some, some uh, work on this. Can you just in a nutshell tell us what the New Zealanders have done? Yeah, look, there are really three things. First of all, they're trying to make it easier for people to get into the market. So there's this usual sort of you know, money being spent to, to make it a little bit easier. But the major things are, first of all, to make it a lot more difficult for investors. Yep. I'll come to that. And secondly, to actually pressure the uh, New Zealand Central Bank to come back and make it hard to get credit. So for investors, they're doing two things. First, and the biggest thing here is that uh, the interest deductibility is going to go. Mm. So uh, if you borrow money to invest in a, in a home um, yep. and you offset your interest costs against your rent, in New Zealand, no longer will that be deductible. So that really changes the dynamics for investors. Anti-investor, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty anti-investor. Mm. And secondly, they're changing the capital gains tax um, uh, provision so that uh, tax will now be payable. You'll have to hold the property for 10 years rather than five years mm. uh, uh, in terms of capital gains tax. So certainly trying to slow down the velocity of the market, making it more difficult for investors, uh, trying to, if anything, stimulate, you know, make it easier for first-home bonus. And it's really been driven by... You know, a really, really strong market, a lot of expats going back to New Zealand. Mm -hmm. They're also going to tighten credit, so we're going to see some further announcements from the New Zealand Central Bank around credit to yeah. make it just, that'll make it harder for people yeah, to get over there, The Reserve Bank does what APRA does here, right? Yeah, but in New Zealand they only have a Reserve Bank. Uh, it, it does both, it, the functions of both the Central Bank, but also acts as the regulator of banks, a bit like APRA. And mm. uh, it said it'll come out in, in May in terms of a, some new requirements for banks, which will essentially means a slowdown of credit right. uh, and make it harder to get money. So the New Zealand government, through a sort of very coordinated policy, is really trying to stop the housing market from continuing to explode. Mm. Uh, and wants to bring prices down or at least stop the growth in prices. Okay, now let's come back ac across the ditch, as the Kiwis would say. Across the ditch. Across the ditch. Um, and do you think those sorts of policies are likely to show up here or will we try something different? Look, I think we'll try something different. So far, the regulators here aren't get, don't seem to be too excited, but I just wonder whether there have been some of the auctions, Peter, <laughs> to see the frenzy. Or what and, are they smoking? What are they, what are they smoking? And yeah. it, it, look, again, and look, the market is it's not uniform. Mm. Um, this is very much a function parts of Sydney and Melbourne, yep. parts of sort of people going into some of the regional areas, of the tree huggers. Like Byron Bay and yep. places like that. Yep. Uh, it, you know, 
WA, Darwin, you know, some parts of regional Australia aren't really seeing it. And also this is more around houses and things of land as opposed to yeah. units. So it's not uniform, but the market is red hot in places. Yeah. So uh, at the moment, the regulators are saying, we're not worried. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think that tune's going to change because there's going to be a lot of political pressure. And if you go back to uh, 2019, there's no way that either political party is going to go with the so-called negative gearing policy. Again. This is what Bill Shorten took yep. the election and pretty well cost him the election. Pretty well cost him the election. So it's going to have to be in, in sort of more subtle measures around the availability of credit. And that's why I think you're going to find uh, we're going to go, APRA will work with the banks and make it a lot harder for investors to, to get finance. And mm. so what I expect that we'll, we'll see things such as uh, you know, the moment when you when you are asked to borrow money for property, you know they add about a three percent margin onto the actual interest rate to work out whether you can service it. If if, if interest yep. rates rise over yep. time, yeah, that'll be increased. I wouldn't be surprised if if interest only loans get a lot harder to get, if not, may become almost impossible. Uh, and then finally, I think we're going to because of what's going on in the interest rate market, where we're seeing Reserve Bank keeping short-term interest rates absolutely flat and wants mm. to say they're not going up for yeah. three years. But longer term rates are going up because of other pressures. I think we're going to see uh, fixed rates uh, on home loans go up, mm. uh, and uh, you know the, the idea of having a big figure of one, you know that's 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 a yeah. thing of the past. By I, big figure, you mean rather than a one point nine percent fixed rate for three years, it might be a two point one. Yeah. So I, I think we're going to see uh, the best time to borrow may have already passed, mm. uh, and it's going to get hard to get credit. So I think if if you're in that investor category and you need to get credit, I'd, I'd be working on it sooner rather than later. Because as I said, at the moment, the regulators are saying, no, no, we're not concerned. Yeah. But I just can't, people don't want house prices going up 20% per annum, right? No. There's the screams and the political screams yeah. are gonna be so big. And bear in mind, the politicians are gonna be very loath to implement tax changes to, uh, to, to, to change yeah. to stop that. So ANZ's got a 17% rise this year, which is extraordinary. Westpac's got 20% over two years. They're all big numbers. Um, one important difference, Paul, is that um, the investor uh, behaviour in New Zealand is far more rampant than here, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a big difference. And to be, and to be fair, investor loans uh, as a proportion of loans has actually mm. fallen. So mm. this activity is not, not so much investor driven. It's actually, you know, first home, first, buyer. first home buyers and expats. And, and, and one of the reasons a lot of the first home buyers are coming out is that because you know, a lot of the younger adults have worked worked out that the actual servicing costs of paying off the loan are less than their rent. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, so why would you be spending eight hundred dollars a week a month on rent when you can pay seven hundred dollars on your home loan or seven hundred fifty dollars on your home loan? Yeah. So they're going to the going to the bank of mum and dad a little bit to get help with a deposit. Mm. You know, and, uh, and and a few other things, and they're they're pushing up the market, the bottom end of the market. And yet at sort of the middle top end of the market, we've got a lot of expats have come home. Mm. Um, this is a function obviously of COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, and they're generally pretty cashed up. Uh, and uh, you know, the high incomes, because that's what they've come, come, come back, coming back from in the States and parts of Europe. Uh, and they're providing the pressure at the, at the top end and middle part of the market. So I think it's, it's really demand driven mm. uh, and people were looking to buy homes to live in as opposed to uh, investors necessarily uh, buying homes to rent out. Okay, now before we wrap this up, because of your knowledge of superannuation, Paul, and the fact that you do bring up the, the bank of mum and dad, uh, do you think a lot of people 
are aware of how they can use their superannuation. As you say, let's imagine we're talking about a young couple who are trying to borrow, haven't got quite the deposit, they go and borrow some money from mum and dad. They actually probably would be well advised to put in a super fund for a year or two and get the, the big gains that the super funds can give before they actually go out and buy. Yeah, I mean, there, and there's a scheme, Peter, that yeah. the, you first, there's a scheme from the federal government that encourages you to use your super to, to save through and, and you can access some of that money. Mm. And that's certainly a, a very very effective way of saving mm. uh, if you're saving for that first deposit. So you get about 60000 in a couple, You can you? get effectively 60000 You won't match the same return by doing it yourself yeah. uh, and you can access it for a deposit. I think that, that's an excellent scheme uh, and is using helping to use super because uh, you know all the data on, on retirement says it's, it's so important to own your own home. It's just as important as having a lot of money in super. Yeah. So the sooner people get into the market, I think that's always a positive. So mm. uh, I think that's how I'd be saving. But I'd also be um, you know be looking at where you're going and if, and if you can act, get, can get cheap fixed term rates, I think they're they're yeah. they're, they're almost no brainers. I, I also would like to warn people about FOMO, this fear of missing out. The prices will come off the boil yeah. once the, the uh, Reserve Bank either raises interest rates or APRA starts getting tough on terms of, of loans. It will come off the boil. And not like all suburbs, but some suburbs, and I, I think Louis Christopher in a, an AFR conference actually said, some suburbs that are going up really fast now will actually fall very fast as well. So you, if this FOMO thing could mean some people rush in too early and end up paying far too much. Yeah, look, just be careful. I mean, auctions are not a hard things to buy properties through and uh, be very careful of the psyche of an auction um, and that, that FOMO factor is, is strong. And so it does pay to look around mm. and, uh, you know, I think you're right, Peter, sometimes you might have to go for, you know, the, the slightly cheaper suburb or area yep. um, simply so you, you can get set. But, yep. um, look, uh, that that's, I think, all really uh, good and, 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 and very pertinent advice. Okay. So uh, that's Paul Rickard from The Switch Report. And before I go, if you want more information about the stocks we like, take out a free trial of the Switzer Report. Many of the stocks we analyse don't end up in this show, so if you want more insights from other experts, please give the report a go. And as I always argue, anything worth doing, worth doing for money. And one last thing, the Monday show will be cancelled because of Easter, but we'll do a bumper show on Thursday.